and welcome to the worst bestsellers where we read about soiled doves so you don't have to i'm renata and i'm kate and for this episode we read redeeming love by francine rivers Joining us to discuss this evangelical Christian romance novel are Allie and Caitlin, two librarians who broke their promise to their teenage selves to never read this book again. Oh, no. Hi, Allie. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for breaking your vow. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Yeah, I guess. I guess. (laughs) Hopefully we can redeem you. (laughs) Um, all right, so real quick, the way that this episode came about was I was reading um, some reviews of upcoming young adult books, and there was one that said that it was based on the story of, what is the Bible story even called? Of, is it Hosea? Hosea and Gomer. Yeah, so it was based on that, and I was like, I don't know what that is, and then I looked it up, and it, it was about like a fallen prostitute and all this, and I was like wait, what? And so I was just tweeting, well, that's a funny thing to, like, base your young adult book on. And then Allie and Caitlin and a bunch of other people like, oh, it's like, it's like redeeming love. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And I guess that this is a hugely popular phenomenon among evangelical Christians of a certain time. I don't know. Uh, Why don't you guys jump in and tell me about redeeming love? So basically what, we, we, we referred to it as the Twilight of the Evangelical Christian set. <laughs> um, it is hugely, hugely popular um, among especially teenage girls in evangelical churches and youth groups. Yeah, so it was originally written, the author Francine Rivers was a, uh, what we in the evangelical world would call a secular romance <laughs> novelist. Um, and this is really her transitional book. It was, she read the book of Hosea and felt very inspired by it to write this 500 page book based on like literally two chapters in the Bible. And she published it for the secular world with Bantam, I think, in the very early 90s. And it did like fine there, but then she continued to become like develop her relationship with God and she was born again. And also Multnomah, which is a big Christian publisher, uh, had interest in republishing it. But the original version of the book is too scandalous for the Christian audience. Oh, really? And didn't have enough, like, explicitly Christian content. So in 1997, I think, hang on, let me look. In 1997, Multnomah re-released what is known as the Redeemed Edition, which is the one we all read, uh, that has some additional Christian content to do with um, the conversion of the main character and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) she she let the rights she let the rights run out for the old one. Like it's hard to find. Yeah, it's a collector's edition, truly, the unredeemed edition. Oh, interesting. Um, but like the soiled the edition. The soiled <laughs> edition. <laughs> yes. uh, her whole like conversion and baptism scene was added for the Christian version and some of the sexy stuff was made less sexy. And so if you read the like letter from Francine at the beginning of the book where she talks about she gives special thanks to her editor, Karen Ball, for her belief in this book and her help in redeeming it for the Christian reader. 
uh, that oh. is to the rewrites that happened so that it could be published by a Christian publisher. And then since then, she's wow. published solely to the Christian market. That's so interesting. Yeah, all of her other, all of her subsequent books are for the Christian market. But this one, you would say, is still her most popular one? By far. Uh, I mean, it sold like, it sold like over a million copies or something, which in the Christian fiction market is like astronomical. Yeah. Wow. It's like a foundational text of Christian romance. Yeah. And you guys said you both read it when you were around like 13. Yep. Yes. Which is way too young to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's dive in and tell y'all about the plot of this book, which is, first of all, there's a lot of things in here. If you are triggered by anything, FYI, there's yeah, like, like child actual- abuse, child rape. Um, racism of all flavors, uh, including against Catholics. I guess that's like religious. No, Dorte oh, so mad. Dorte <laughs> hates discrimination. Dorte yeah, uh, Dorte was born in a very Catholic country, so that's probably that's probably some of this. I did. I referred to it in my notes as super evangelical cattiness about Catholic. Catholicism. Yeah. So I will send that. I don't think cats actually discriminate against Catholics. um, Catholic. Yeah. Unfortunately, Catholic bashing and snide remarks about Catholic pop up in a lot of Christian fiction. Mm -hmm. It's so strange to me because I wasn't raised um, religious at all, and so to me, I don't, I don't see a huge difference between like the different flavors of Christianity, but. I guess they're there. I guess some people really do see them. <laughs> they are super there when you're in this camp. Um, Such as. Uh... <laughs> they're super there. Yeah. yeah. There's so, also. Yeah. <laughs> we won't get it. Yeah. Both forcible abortions and the weird and regrettable romance trope of divinely cured infertility, mm-hmm. which I know is deeply upsetting to some people who have experienced actual non-magical infertility. So, you know, it's here. And also, also there is Satan. actual Satan. <laughs> yes. Actual Satan. Yep. So let's get so- started. <laughs> on that note (laughs) yeah and oh and then also i really did feel like maybe l ron hubbard or maybe she read scientology (laughs) because there is a lot of talk about the main character's childhood that reads very similar to all of l ron hubbard's descriptions of engrams yeah like our main character her name well she has a lot of names (laughs) but her, her given name is sarah and she knows from an early age that her dad wanted her to be aborted and that Nobody really wanted her and all kinds of fucked up stuff she heard at a young age and really internalized. And her mother is a prostitute, but she doesn't quite understand that yet. And when she's eight, she gets sold off basically to be a child prostitute at a house of ill repute that's run by a guy called, is he the Duke or just Duke? Just Duke. Duke. Just Duke. Just Duke. And this is all in the prologue. A bunch of things. Yeah, I think we need to dial it back a little bit because I feel like we skipped a couple important parts there, which is that, did you say that um, she was the result of an adulterous affair? Well, I mean, yeah, her mom was a prostitute and her father was one of of her clients. Yeah, to start off with. And he essentially rejects her and because he rejects her he rejects her mother because her mother keeps trying to push him on her push her on him 
So her mother not not in a come- child prostitute way, and it isn't no, no, your no, daughter no, no, cool but- way. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I got the impression that before she, before he dumped her, she wasn't a prostitute anymore. She just... Was his mistress. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like, his specific mistress. And then once he dumped her and stopped giving her money, that was when she had to resort to prostitution. Right. And during this time point is when baby Sarah actually hears her father say, I wanted you to have an abortion. Yeah, yeah, that he wanted her never to have been born. And it's also significant to readers of an evangelical background that she and her mother are Catholic. And oh, right. there is a whole, because that's like the perfect level of she grew up thinking she was Christian, but not knowing real Christianity that leaves her able to be redeemed and converted later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, <laughs> after her father rejects her, her mother mopes for a long time and then apparently off screen her father makes a deal with her mother that he'll see her again as long as Sarah isn't around so she sends Sarah off with the housekeeper and the housekeeper like proceeds to like get drunk and have sex with her like creepy handsy boyfriend first with Sarah in the room then he puts Sarah out in the hallway where she can still hear everything that goes on and then he leaves the next day and the housekeeper gets super drunk and like shakes Sarah and tells her that men are all worthless and all they want is sex and like verbally abuses her. And then she's takes eight. Her home. And she's eight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's eight. And when she gets home, her mother, uh, you know, says, oh, well, we're going to go visit your grandparents for the first time ever for no reason. We're packing up our entire house. We're leaving right now for no reason. Bye. And it is, of course, because her father has dumped her mother and her mother, you know, now needs a source of income. So her parents reject her because they wanted her to, you know, not have sex out of wedlock, get knocked up, then have a baby. And her father's disowned her. So that is when her mother resorts to prostitution in order to keep them alive. Yeah, keep them alive, keep them fed, keep them sort of with a roof over their heads and, uh, you know, she, of course, dies tragically of a consumptive illness because she's a poor single mom prostitute. And this is a Christian novel. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So then we flash forward because um, when we leave off on Sarah, she's eight. And when we check back in with her, actually, I guess I don't know how old she's supposed to be. I think she's supposed to be 18. Okay, so she... Yeah, and so, well, at the end of that sequence, she sold into sexual slavery. Right, to Duke. It's it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when, when we check back in with her, she's 18-ish, uh, working as a soiled dove, a phrase that is used a hundred million times in this book. Liberally. <laughs> Which I had not heard before. Apparently it's pretty common in old Westy times to call a prostitute a soiled dove. And she is that. She is a real soiled dove, you guys. She's now going by the name Angel because when she was given to the Duke, she was so, with Duke, he, she was so traumatized that she couldn't tell him her name. So he renamed her Angel because she is incredibly beautiful with beautiful blonde hair and beautiful blue eyes and perfect pale skin, of course, like an angel. Mm-hmm. Um, so she keeps her name Sarah secret because that belongs to her and goes by this name that he gave her Angel. 
Uh, so she's out west now. She went out to California. It's like gold rush time. So like old timey, whatever, wild <laughs> west shit. Mumble. Yeah. yeah. Something <laughs> like that. And she's like the fanciest, most well-loved prostitute in this gold mining village. All the dudes want to pay to have sex with her. With their there's gold dust. Lottery. But yeah, there's yes. a lottery. <laughs> yes. Um, you can't just pay. You have to pay to enter the lottery, and then if you win that, then you can have then you can have sex with her for thirty minutes. And like, there's some other prostitutes. We see them a little bit. They're all jealous of Angel because she's the prettiest and most expensive one. Um, her only friend goes by Lucky, and she's a drunk and, and kind of great. And I kind of love Lucky. <laughs> I know um, she's oh. she's the best. <laughs> um. So. While she's prostituting, um, one that she likes to, because she's like the the most wanted of the prostitutes, she can kind of do whatever she wants within reason. So she takes these long walks during the day. And um, that was a thing that she and her mother used to like to do. And one day when she's on one of her long walks, Michael Hosea sees her. And he's a farmer. He's not one of those gross gold dust miners. He's a respectable farmer who sells his produce to um the, to the general Jew. store in town <laughs> to keep them so from she's... getting scurvy no scurvy. yeah there is like a full page depiction like sidebar about how scurvy is a real problem and you gotta eat these vegetables <laughs> to not get scurvy <laughs> all weird yeah. things aside and there are many weird things in this book she obviously did a lot of research yeah yeah and i will say also she doesn't quite have full-on outlander syndrome you can tell she's not using all of her research but there are some Outlander moments where she's like, here's all my info about scurvy. And a little <laughs> bit later with the garden. But it's it's definitely not full on hashtag herbs, but a little bit. <laughs> it's like partial herbs. Yeah. There is some weird kind of almost Scientological stuff about how all the young gold miners who suddenly have these swollen gums and swelling legs, they think they need a doctor. But all they need is common sense and good diet. Vegetables. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. Fix that. Yeah. Right. Just eat vegetables. <laughs> so anyway, so Michael sees her and God is like, yo, you got to marry this girl. And he's like, her? And God is like, yeah, definitely her. And by the way, this was a source of confusion for me for a while in this book because God speaks mostly to Michael, but God speaks in this book in bold italic font. But Satan speaks in bold font. And any character's individual thoughts are just plain italics. And it they're not, like, attributed. They're just, like, dropped in there. So it took me a while to figure it out. And I didn't quite notice the difference between bold italics and bold. And when it, when the voice talks to Michael, it's, like, very clearly God. And when it's Angel, to me, it was, like, a little more ambiguous. So I was like, is God just being, like, really mean to her? Or, like, <laughs> <laughs> like what is, like, God is being real rude but it's not god because it's not italics but i just feel like that would cause so much trouble for if for like visually impaired readers like if you're listening to the audiobook how do you say bold maybe there's a different reader maybe they get a different voice it's not very accessible is all i hope it's just like morgan freeman dropping (laughs) the book that would be great i hope that is the case Yes, yeah, I did also, greatly appreciate your suggestion that Satan should just speak in Comic Sans, and yeah. that would clear everything up for everyone. Yeah, Satan should be Comic Sans, God will be Papyrus, and this book will be a lot easier to follow, except for in the audiobook, which then, then yeah, Morgan Freeman and... 
Who I don't know, like Alan Cumming, I think, could be Satan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, but I will say that in the Kindle book, I was very confused reading their notes about this, because that's not how it is in the Kindle book. Uh-oh. God is just regular bold. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, so it is just God being really mean to her. <laughs> and uh, So I was reading theirs, and I was like, their notes, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that that's God talking to her in just plain bold. But the Kindle is just different. So what's um, Satan? Um, I can't remember. So now I'm looking for it. Like it might have just Maybe been it's italics. Sans. Okay. I wish. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Michael Isaiah sees this girl, walk, Angel, walking down the street, and is like, "Oh my God, she's so beautiful!" And God is like, "Yeah, you're gonna marry her." And he's like, "No." And she, God's like, "No, definitely, yeah, you're gonna marry her." And when he mentions to uh, the grocer that he's selling to, he's like, oh, well, she's a prostitute. She's the prettiest prostitute. And you got to be real rich to get with her. And this is and the first instance of she's a soiled dove. My- Michael's trying not to say, like, prostitute. So he calls her soiled dove. Mm-hmm. And I do like, by the way, uh, Joseph, the grocer, is Jewish. And he gives Michael advice on which prostitute's, like, more affordable. <laughs> <laughs> he's like oh yeah when i need like my needs taken care of i go to like priscilla she's a real discount prostitute this book is such oh. garbage but michael's like no so like much. god told me to marry the prettiest prostitute so he keeps buying 30 minute time slots with her and he'll and he goes and visits her and he's like uh, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything with you. I just want to talk. And she is great. She's like such a misandrist. And she's like, I don't like, I don't care about anything Whatever. you have to say, like, but it's your money. Like you can waste your 30 minutes. And he is, his thoughts are so annoying. He's like, I, she's being so unreasonable. I don't understand why she's being like this. Like, can't she tell that I am serious and I want to marry her? And she's like, men want to marry me all the time. <laughs> It's so funny because it's he walks in. He's like, "Oh, you know, you're gonna marry me," and she's like, "Wait, uh, what?" <laughs> like she has zero say in it. Nope. So Michael pays to see her all these times. She he tries to get her to come with him. She won't, and um, he is really frustrated and angry that you know God told him that he has to marry her, and she's just not listening, <laughs> and. Doesn't she understand? But God's like, try one more time. <laughs> and um, when he, he goes back a few days later, he finds her and she's been like, had the crap beaten out of her by the head of the brothel's bodyguard. Yeah, he's, who, he's, whose name, he's like the enforcer. Yeah, and the head of the brothel is called Duchess in no relation to Duke. No. Nope. But, you know, that's just a thing. So then, I guess this isn't even the first of the incredibly sketchy things that happen in this book. But no. (laughs) (laughs) A a notable sketchy thing that happens is that he's like, well, I can save you, so you should marry me, and then I can take you away from, you know, lying dead, bleeding in the gutter. And she's kind of like, well... Why not? No, she literally her, says, why vow. not? He's like, will you marry me? She is delirious. She says, why not? He says, great, we're totes married now. Why not? Takes her off <laughs> to wow. his cabin. So sketchy. And she wakes up three like, days and later. And some serious consent issues. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. I, I, <laughs> why not? That's Wait, not enthusiastic consent. <laughs> it's not con- enthusiastic consent for marriage or sex or anything. And it's just like, go away. But nope, they're totes married. Yeah, he takes her back to his cabin and like nurses her back to health. And she, as she's getting better, is basically like, well, this is not what I want, and I'm not going to get close to you, and I'm not going to give in to your whole thing. Yeah, she's like, I just want, like, the money that Duchess owes me. I want to have my own cabin. I want to be free. Like, and he's like, you are free. And she's like, no, like, I want to be by myself, because whenever there's a man around, I won't be free. Just true. But, you know. God wants him to stay strong for this girl, so if God says to keep this girl against her will until she bows to his superior strength as a man, then that's just what he's got to do. Yep. Um, and that's when that's when Paul shows up, right? Um, yeah, around then. Um, there's some, you know, there's some healing times, and, like, he teaches how to garden and shit, like, whatever. And then, yeah, Paul comes back, and Paul is their neighbor, and Paul also had been married to Michael's sister, Tessie. Tessie, yes. But she died. She died. So Paul is a widower and also totally in love with Michael. And he comes <laughs> home and he's like, oh, no, no way. Like, I can't he believe you married. He recognizes her yeah. instantly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he's like, bro, like, you married a soiled dove. And Michael's like, I know, but I redeemed her. And Paul is just furious about it. And it really 100% definitely just seems like he is just in love with Michael and doesn't want her to be him to be with anyone. But he well, especially because he hates. keeps saying he keeps saying she's come between us. Yeah. Like he says that like 10 times. Yep. <laughs> and oh, we have not mentioned that. So Angel, she goes by Angel and Michael doesn't want to call her Angel. So he's like, oh, oh my God. Um, <laughs> that. So first he calls her Mara because Mara means bitter and she's so bitter. And she's like, I don't like that. My name's Angel. And he's like, fine, I'll call you Amanda. That's a, like a loving name. And she's like, my name's Angel. And he's like, whatever, Amanda. And then and then later when she's a little bit nicer to him, he's like, oh, I love you, Tirza. And yeah, Tirza's her like. I don't know her sexy name. <laughs> her sexy when name. they have feelings. Yeah. Yes. All of these names that he picks. Well, Amanda, he just plucked out of the air. But like Mara and Tirza are they're Hebrew names. So like ostensibly, he like knew them from reading the Bible. But but like I've been reading the Bible since I could read. I, I don't know what Hebrew names mean. <laughs> He's Maybe God told perfect. him. Maybe <laughs> God told him in bold italics, so he knows. Um, oh, and also, so Michael keeps renaming her at whim, but also he's very mad that she'll never call, she doesn't call him Michael, she always just calls him Mr. or like nothing. Which and, is hilarious. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, I like her a lot. And she... Um, he knows that she's just putting up barriers and she won't like let him in and he wants... They're married, so they're, like, a part of each other, but she won't let him, and she won't call him Michael. Meanwhile, he is not calling her by the name that, I mean, he knows Angel isn't her real name, but it's what she says she wants to be called. And he's like, nope, sorry about it, Amanda. Yeah, he basically says Angel was a prostitute, and she doesn't exist anymore. So it's like, he's basically erasing her. Yep. And making her into somebody better. Yeah. 
Well, textually, he says he wants a wife to be part of himself. So I guess he gets to name his parts whatever he wants. Oh, oh God. Oh, God. Oh, oh, and we skipped over. Paul notices that she has, and I quote, a nice backside. If uh, yeah. Paul. <laughs> Paul is a garbage. Paul is a garbage. He is, yes. Anyway, so uh, Angel, she is sick of it. She wants to go back and get the money that Duchess owes her so that she can be on her own without any men around. And she knows Paul hates her, but she gets a ride into town with Paul because she knows Paul will, like, support her wanting to get away from Michael. And they have this scene where she's like, oh, then you'll have him to herself. And Paul is like, is she implying, like, that I am not a man? <laughs> he gets real mad about he's it. He's real mad. And then he's like, well, you owe me for the ride. And she's like, fine, we can bone. And so they, like, have sex halfway, I guess, like, on between their home area and town. And then he's like, you're disgusting. I can't believe you do that. You're married. And she's like, I'm married to, like, your best friend. Like, you're also disgusting, bro. And he's like, whatever. And then uh, she goes back to town. And Duchess isn't there anymore, but she starts working as a prostitute somewhere else. And Michael comes back and he's like, no, you can't do this anymore, honey. We're married. You gotta come back. And she's like, I don't want to. But she goes back... The what? reason Duchess isn't there anymore is because the 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 brothel burned down and all the other prostitutes, well, not all the, the only prostitutes I cared about died tragically in the fire. Oh, that's right. True. Specifically, the Poor... drunk one and the Chinese one died. The yeah. rest of them are yes. fine. Poor yeah, one out for lucky. Are fine. Yes. So she's pissed. And also now, like, she can't get her money anyway. So, yeah, she goes to back to prostituting, but, like, in, like, a, a bar or something now. In the saloon. Um, yeah. It wouldn't be a Western so, if we didn't say the word saloon at least once. It's true. But Michael eventually comes back to try and find her, and he, like, finds her, you know, being a prostitute with some guy, and is, like, super pissed about it, because... Yeah, I mean, ugh. he barges into the room, like, while she's in the act, apparently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you can't do this, she's my wife. And the guy's like, but I paid. And... God. And Michael's like, I forgive you, but but you gotta stop. And she's like, I never asked for any of this. He takes her back to the cabin and is like, well, you know, because of God, like, I'm giving you a second chance. And she's like, well, fuck you too. And then that's that's around the time, like, now that she's back, stuck at the cabin with him again, like, she does sort of start to be into him, but, like, she can't love guys because all men ever want, as her nanny said to her, drunkenly, back when she was eight years old, is sex, and they're not good for anything else, so she's mad at herself for developing feelings for him and continues to treat him like crap in order to hide the fact that she has feelings for him. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Michael has been double checking the Bible and has learned that it is in fact okay for her to enjoy sex, um, which (laughs) she is concerned about because she believes that that was Eve's original sin. And also he's like super into getting her to go to church. So he's the whole package, ladies. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there are part like I did like his little speech about how women should enjoy sex. Like that was yeah, that wasn't good. Terrible. I thought yeah. 
But yeah, so she's still putting up barriers because she still just like doesn't think she deserves love and like whatever. Um, it it kind of becomes more like she's less annoyed by Michael, but she's like, oh, he's like a beautiful cinnamon roll. He doesn't deserve a soiled dove. <laughs> like he should marry a, a fellow cinnamon roll. And then, and as then... luck would have it, a whole bunch <laughs> of cinnamon rolls come to town. <laughs> the cinnamon like a whole truck... handful. <laughs> The Cinnabon truck breaks down right outside their cabin, and Michael has to help repair it. And meanwhile, it's this this whole family that they were on their way to Oregon, but they they stop and stay with them for a while to get their wagon fixed and like whatever. And the the most there's like five kids, but the oldest one is sixteen, and she's a girl named Miriam, and she's like a little bit sassy, and she kind of wants to be friends with Angel, but Angel doesn't like friends. Because she doesn't deserve them, because she is a soil dove. But Miriam kind of wears her down, and they're friends, and it's kind of nice. And oh, and Miriam, Miriam falls in love with Paul. So Angel had told Miriam, and also Miriam's mom, like, oh, by the way, I was a prostitute. And yeah, then she tells him that like the first day, because like, yeah, she just like wants to get it there. out. <laughs> yeah, she but just wants to get of... it out in the open, and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, they're like, oh, that that must have sucked for you. We're glad that you're happy now. And she shocks. They don't react. Yeah, they're, they, she shocks them, but they're not like, you are, or anything. Yeah, yeah they they have a pretty good response to it. And she's like, ugh. Well, fine. Yes. I guess we can be friends. <laughs> uh, so Miriam starts to, like, fall in love with Paul. Which and also who... Michael. Yeah, Miriam falls in love with Michael first. Both of them. <laughs> So Miriam is kind of in love with Michael and kind of in love with Paul, and she's 16, which in, to them is old enough to get married, I guess. And Paul is really, like, getting extra aggressive with Angel, and and also Angel is starting to see how cute the family, the cinnamon roll family is, and they're, like, younger kids, and she's like, oh, I There's want a kids. baby cinnamon roll. There's a baby cinnamon yes. roll, and Angel is like... She reveals that she can't have kids ever because Duke forcibly sterilized her. And she's like, but Michael, I know you want kids and I want them too, but I just can't physically have them. And he is like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, God said we should be married, so it's okay. But she feels too strongly about it. So she runs away again. Yes. This time, instead of going back to the same old town, she always runs away to, she runs away to Sacramento? No, San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah, somewhere. No, Sacramento the first time. Oh, that's right. Oh my gosh, yeah. Sacramento briefly, and she works at the grocer, and then she, and then Michael comes for her because he picks up the new stove and he takes her back. And, and in, in between, when... there's kind of some heartfelt conversations with Miriam about, like, how much she wants to get married and how much she really likes Paul and also Michael. And Angel really does not want Miriam to marry Paul because she knows Paul's a garbage fire. So she's like, I really got to get out of here. And then and then Michael can marry Miriam and they'll have kids just like everybody wants and everybody will be happy except for me. But that's fine because I don't deserve happiness anyway. Bye. Yeah. So oh, now she runs away to San Francisco. 
Yeah, this is the wait, third is runaway. Is it before she leaves that time that she like dances for him and sleeps them in the meadow and then takes that's off the into the time. night? That's yeah. awesome. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, that's that's like her goodbye to him. Right. Cancel that then. This is the time when loving him is just too intense, so she has to go. Yeah. And so yeah. She, which time do like... they have the, the prayer sex? <laughs> oh geez, I don't know. <laughs> that might be after the first time. Okay. So she runs away to San Francisco and she gets a job not prostituting, not prostituting, but as a cook. And like, there, the she's really shocked because the guy who owns the cafe is like nice to her and takes care of her. Um, but then the cafe burns down because like basically everything just burns down in this book. I mean that that was historically a real problem back in days of. Wood fire stoves and wood houses. <laughs> I guess yeah, they that's get, true. They kept talking about it in San Francisco. Like every time something burns, they just rebuild it. Um, but when this burns down, all the money she had saved and all of her possessions and everything is gone. And while she's feeling sorry for herself, the Duke show Duke shows up again. I keep calling him the Duke. Like this is Moulin Rouge. Uh, <laughs> same. I have the same. And I also picture him as that guy. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> So Duke shows up again, and he kind of threatens the guy who owned the cafe. Oh, and and this is around when he reveals that the last guy who was kind of nice to her, he straight up murdered her at him. Yeah, he's real murdery. Real murdery. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, So she's like, "All right, I'll go with you as long as you don't hurt him," but. He's like into young girls, and now at eighteen, she's she might aged be like out. twenty at this point, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, still way too old. Yes. Oh yeah, she's way aged out. Yeah. So like now she's supposed to be in charge of like all of the baby prostitutes, but first she has to be a prostitute temporarily or something. Yeah, for one so he can week, break her so, spirit. so he can break her spirit yeah. and remind her of her place. And he brings her out on the stage because it's like a saloon slash show hall slash brothel. And she hears God talking to her and she realizes she can't do this. So instead she gets on stage and she starts singing Rock of Ages and it makes everybody feel real sad and ashamed. And this very nice businessman comes and takes her and all the baby prostitutes away to live at his house. Which was, that was the point, reading that point, for those who follow me on Twitter, was the point where I tweeted, this book is fucking wild. (laughs) (laughs) Like, 15 times she runs away from this guy, like, this whole thing, and then, like, fucking singing a hymn on stage, and a businessman's like, oh, yes, no, you and all the baby prostitutes come with me, and what the fuck? Well, he reveals that God told him to go to the saloon that day. Because later his wife's like, yeah, uh, what were you doing there? That. And he's like, uh, God told me. And she's like, okay. She's like, yeah. Great. Cool. As you do. So she lives with this family and especially becomes friends with their oldest daughter, whose name is Susanna. And all- and she gets all the ho- she gets homes for all the baby prostitutes. Yeah. Which, sure side note, care. around this point, I was like, oh, I see where sh- I see what's happening. This is great because she'll realize that it's okay if she's infertile and she can adopt one of these baby prostitutes and go home to Michael and they'll have kids anyway, even though she like couldn't give birth to them. But that is not what happened. So no. far from what happened. Nope. I wish it was stay. though. It would have been better. Yeah. This is around the time that they take her to church. 
and she yes. has like a literal wedding with Jesus in extremely weddingy terms and is born again and baptized in the just for the Christian reader scene that was added. <laughs> mm, makes sense. Very important. So then and it's re- about yeah, it's about this time where Michael is at home and he decides not to go after her because <laughs> because God tells him that Michael became Angel's God. Oh, right. Yeah. And so that's why he had to let her go. Yeah. So she has to come back on her own terms. So Paul goes out to find her instead. Like yeah. three years later. Yeah. Because <laughs> yes. re- Paul at first is like, it's so awesome that Angel has left. Now Michael will marry Miriam or me and everything will be great. <laughs> But he realizes eventually that Michael still considers himself married and he's not going to move on. And so he's like, oh, shoot. Like, I thought this would help, but it's not. So I guess I'll go try and find her. Because at this point, he's married to Miriam. Yeah. And she's mad at him. Miriam is mad at Paul for not forgiving Angel. Because he's still super angry and bitter about her this whole time, even though she's Miriam's, like, best friend. He, yeah, like, actively the, hates his wife's best friend. The direct quote is, if he was going to save his marriage, he had to find the witch and bring her back. <laughs> right. So he heads off to do that. <laughs> yep. And he, he does. He finds her, and he sees her wearing, like, a, a demure but nice dress and talking to a businessman and then going into the bank. And I think he kisses her on the cheek and Paul and it's is the guy that like it's like the guy that, from the family that saved her. Right. I mean, we know that, but Paul doesn't yeah. know that. So he sees that, and he is just shocked by how brazen she is, like kissing another man on yeah, the street. She's gone back to. He's just. He assumes she's gone back to prostitution. And then he follows her around, and he realizes that he was wrong. What she has, in fact, done is started the House of Magdalena, which is a house where other soil doves can come and learn trade skills like cooking and sewing so that they can get good, respectable jobs. And he is very ashamed of himself for assuming the worst when she is being so good and noble. And but he's still an asshole to her oh, when he goes up to time. her to finally confront her. Big time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. He's just like a jerk. Paul's and... got a Paul. <laughs> Paul you does know. got a Paul. <laughs> yep. But she is basically like, oh, you know, I understand. Like, I left so that Michael would marry Miriam because I love him, but he deserves better. And I can't have children. And he's like shocked that she's nice, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, then the, the, Paul's like, by the way, I married Miriam and she's mad. Oh, because <laughs> for a long time at the beginning of the conversation, they have this misunderstanding where Paul's like, oh, Miriam's pregnant. And she assumes it's by Michael. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad. Like, Michael, for a while, they have this conversation without realizing their miscommunication. And then she's like, oh, you're married to Miriam? And he's like, yeah, Michael's like waiting for you. And she's like, ah. Yeah, so once she finds out that Michael's been waiting for her, like, she feels real bad and decides that she's going to leave the guy, the businessman's daughter, Susanna, in charge of the baby prostitute Reformation House and go back and find Michael. And also, it has been, like, three years. Yeah. She's been gone for, like, three years. Literally, yes. Um, So she finds him, like, farming or something and just cries... 
cries and like kind of strips down yeah, physically just, like, and emotionally. Like she gets naked. Yeah. It's weird. Like in the field. Yeah. And she's like and then she, she reveals him. what he's always wanted, which is her real name of yes. Sarah. And as soon as he hears that, he's like, oh, thank you, God, I understand now. And he realizes that just like the biblical Sarah, even though Sarah Angel thinks that she's infertile, she's obviously not, and they're so happy. And then in the epilogue, it's revealed that she magically had three children by him, and they were so happy until they died. And at an old age, after 68 years of marriage. Yeah. So that was that book that happened so yeah i mean this book after hearing it described to me by you guys and like the concept i honestly was expecting it to be sort of more offensive than it was (laughs) i mean it's offensive but it's not like (laughs) i don't know i thought it would be worse and it's also like pretty well written Yeah. yeah she's not a terrible writer I was impressed by how readable it was because I was expecting it to not be that. And also pretty, I mean, I don't know that I was necessarily expecting it to be bad because at this point I have reached the point in doing this podcast where my scale of badness has been completely destroyed. Right. Right. So like listeners who are not Kate and Renata, like this is not good. Yeah, don't read it. (laughs) No, 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 it's not good. It's not good. (laughs) But, but it's like, not like generally on par with like you know outlander and the perfect letter and like all these just like competently written yeah. not well it's set up like it's constructed very well like a lot of the christian fi- there's a lot of white space there's a lot of like chapters with cliffhangers like mm-hmm. obviously the editor knew what they were doing yeah, I will say, like, the prologue is downright traumatizing. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's very upsetting. It's we so had bad. to take mental breaks after we read it. Like, and like, I actually I cried. Yeah. Hide the book in your freezer, under your bed, etc. Oh, yeah. This um, book was under my bed the entirety of the reading of it. Yeah. And it does that weird, like, all mediocre book things where it switches point of view and it switches tone kind of, like, randomly. Yeah. Also, um, the copy editing real bad. Yeah, like it's not good, but I finished it. Oh, yeah. And it's 500 pages long, so that's saying something. Mm -hmm. I will also say it's, okay, it's more feminist than I was expecting, and I was expecting Mm -hmm. it to be zero feminist. Right. So (laughs) it's not like it's not very feminist, but I did think Michael's whole thing of like... Yeah, his sex positivity. Yeah, like within a very strict role but like he was very much like oh I don't want you to just like close your eyes and bear it I want you to enjoy sex like we're married this is a sacred thing for both of us and you should really enjoy it and I liked that and I like that he understood kind of like he didn't totally get it but he kind of was like oh I get like you know men have treated you like garbage and you think I'm the same so I'll kind of wait it out like he was real smug about it but could have been worse yeah yeah it could have been way worse yeah i also um i also liked that it has 
friendships between men and women that are like functional and not everybody is secretly wanting to sleep with each other because I you feel don't like see that's that still a, lot a thing we have trouble with in Christian fiction and mainstream fiction. But and some of that I think benefits from it being Christian fiction because the good men in this book, like Jonathan, the businessman in the big city, and the father of the family of absolute perfection are like good complementarian patriarch householders who um, spend all their time taking care of their families and loving their wives. And so, of course, they would never look at another woman like that. But Angel has like functional friendships with them. And once Miriam and Michael get over their issues, they have a functional friendship. And you can picture them being like normal human friends, which is cool. Yeah. All that saying, like, it's not a victim blamey book. I mean, obviously, you know, she was sold into sexual slavery. Like, that, it's not her fault, and it's never pointed to her fault. But she is kind of set up as, like, the perfect victim. Yeah. Like, you, you want her to be happy and fall in love with Michael and escape from prostitution because, like, it wasn't what she wanted. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I feel like I feel like too, which is not I mean not necessarily a mark against it, but I feel like the reason that it's not victim blamey is because of her redemption arc. Mm-hmm. Because like they need her to become a good Christian at the end. Right. So it's like purposely set up where she blames herself, but we know that secretly there's a good Christian inside of her that you know, she just needs to embrace and that kind of, that arc supersedes the victim blaming that you would Im- imagine in this sort of yeah. plot normally. Like, if, right. she, if she had become a prostitute in a different way, you know, if she hadn't been sold into sexual slavery or if she, like, picked that as her career, like... Or the, even if there was the slightest hint that she had enjoyed any of her sex work. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that would, it would have been a totally different book. It definitely wouldn't be a Christian fiction book that would have been written. Like, yeah, you know, all, all sex work is inherently evil in this world and all women that are in it are trying to escape it. And it, it reminds me a lot, actually, of a lot of like hurt comfort fan fiction where the yes. point is just to like torture your character as much as possible in a way that's clearly not their fault, just so that later you can have these scenes of Michael giving her a bath and wrapping her in a blanket and telling her it's okay. And he wraps and her the, in blankets like a lot. That's she spends twenty percent of her time just burritoed up. <laughs> <laughs> this and is the story of a burrito and a bunch of cinnamon rolls. I mean, it's a nice life if you can get it. I guess. <laughs> like... <laughs> the uh, the self hatred and then like your partner being like, no, like you're so much better than you think is also a huge tenant of those her comfort fanfics. Like, and, and also, also Outlander, also Fifty Shades of Grey. I really yes. see this existing on this just the same kind of continuum. It's just yeah. this is the one with Jesus in it right. and not the one with time travel and not the one with S&M. Right. <laughs> That is kind Did of you just use Jesus and S&M in the same sentence? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little upsetting to me. I'm sorry. You can imagine uh, a period and I started a new sentence. Thank you. <laughs>
Um, that is kind of the template for all evangelical fiction is like 300 pages of slightly voyeuristic how gross and dirty someone is, but it's not really their fault. And if they had a chance at a better life, they would take it. And, and then they then get the chance Jesus, at the better life. Yeah, yeah, Jesus and his stand-ins come in and offer you the chance of the better life. And you take it, and you're magical and clean and pure, and everything's better, and blankets and baths and hooray. <laughs> exactly it's that. every evangelical novel. <laughs> exactly that. Um, well, how about if we move on and do some dramatic readings and just give you all a chance to join in on the burrito cinnamon roll party? <laughs> Yay! <laughs> And we're actually going to start off with something a little bit different. And yeah. I'll, let, I'll let Caitlin go ahead and introduce that. <laughs> so um, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, you know that I prepared very thoroughly for this <laughs> podcast. I checked out an entire armful of books from the University of Iowa libraries, including biblical commentaries. And I did go back and read the book of Hosea on which this is based and if you are the kind of person who wants to talk about that at length, um, please come follow me on Twitter immediately. But until then, for the heathens among you who did not grow up with this stuff, I wanted to bring you some of actual Hosea, um, in which Hosea is indeed commanded by the Lord to marry a whore. But things are a little bit darker there. Um, a lot darker. Her children out of wedlock. Um, and so, and her children get very symbolic biblical names. The first one is named Jezreel, not like Stephen or whatever it was in this book, uh, which means God knows. And then her out-of-wedlock children are named in Hebrew, not pitied and not my people by God who tells her what to name her children. So I just wanted to read part of Hosea for y'all so you could get a picture of what's really going on here in the Bible and try to figure out how Francine got from that to this um, very merciful tome. It should also be mentioned that like the, the ratio, the book of Hosea is very short and the ratio of Hosea's actual story with Gomer, which is the prostitute's name. uh, We know why rivers changed it. Um, (laughs) It versus like the actual amounts of prophecy Like, the book is very short, and it's mostly prophecy. Like, it's there's very, very little of the story there. So, like, the fact that she got 500 pages of story out of it is really astonishing. Yeah, and also, I just assume this goes without saying, but it probably doesn't for, like, 95% of the world. In actual Hosea, the general consensus reading is that the prophet Hosea is Hosea and a voice of God. But the prostitute represents the nation of Israel, which has turned away from God to worship Baal, which is a common kind of motif in the Bible. And so the whore and her whoredoms are really probably the nation of Israel, um, possibly some other things. But it's all like deeply symbolic. Yeah. It's not just God saying, hey, go marry a prostitute. Oh, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) But it's, it's, it's go show this prostitute the love that I'm going to show the nation of Israel. Right. But first, there's a whole bunch of shame. And that's what I wanted to read, because this is how actual God speaks about uh, the actual prostitute in the book of Hosea. So for those of you following along in the pews, we are going to be reading from Hosea uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Um, And I guess technically I am the voice of God. So here we go. (laughs) Uh, Say ye unto your brethren... Amai, and to your sisters, Ruhama, plead with your mother, plead, 
For she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her, therefore, put away her whoredoms out of sight, and her adulteries from between, from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot, she that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, and make a wall, that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore I will return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness and now I will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her hand out of mine hand. I will also cause her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she buried her incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. And then he, like, promises to redeem her and stuff, but he's really pissed off for a lot of it. And, well, and George Washington wanted that vine and fig tree. It's true. Well, they're going to be destroyed. <laughs> the beasts of the field shall eat them. <laughs> Because of yeah, my immediate thought was, how can they sit under their own vine and fig tree? <laughs> That's just not on. Sometimes they shouldn't have poured around. <laughs> and I now, I feel so incomplete without saying the word of the Lord. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, yeah, that's your original source text that covers like 400 pages of the book in which. It's not a, it's not a romantic story. It's not it's supposed not. to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's there's no blanket wrapping in that yeah. i know that's that's one of the reasons why like as an evangelical phenomenon it's so almost baffling because hosea is not it's not a romantic book i'm also gonna go out on a limb and say it's not a book your average churchgoer who has not done a full read of the bible either has read or remembered well it does not come up in the lectionary like ever yeah it's hosea is a minor prophet Take that, Hosea. Oh, no, that's, what, that's what Bible... <laughs> the, the Old Testament is divided into major prophets and minor prophets, and Hosea is a minor prophet. It's not something that like people preach out of on a regular basis. Wow. <laughs> Jesus times. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Thank you. Thank you for taking us to church. And Literally. now we're, we're going to take y'all back to the Wild West. And <laughs> uh, there, our first dramatic reading is going to be when... Uh, the first time Angel runs away and Paul takes her, and I will be Paul, and 
Kate will be Sarah slash Amanda slash Angel, and Allie will be the the general narrator. Well, mister, you needn't even wonder anymore. Now that I'm gone, you can have Michael to yourself all winter long. His knuckles whitened on the reins. Was she making some sort of foul insinuation? Did she doubt his manhood? Yanking the reins, he pulled the wagon off the road and stopped. She stiffened, wary. Why are you stopping? You owe me something for the ride. She went very still. Oh, yeah. We're actually, we're going to skip ahead um, because this page is, the section is really long, but we wanted that part and then we will skip ahead. Paul glared down at her from the wagon seat. You know what, Angel? You're overrated. You aren't worth more than two bits. Something burst inside her. And what are you worth? His eyes narrowed. What do you mean? She came closer and snatched the shawl from the side of the wagon. I know what I am. I never pretended to be anything else. Not once. Not ever. She put her hand on the edge of the wagon seat. And here you are, borrowing Michael's wagon and his horses and his gold and using his wife. She laughed at him. And what do you call yourself? His brother. His face went from white to red, then white again. He clenched his fist and looked as though he wanted to kill her. I ought to leave you here. I ought to let you walk the rest of the way. Calm now, in complete control, Angel climbed up on the wagon seat and sat beside him. She smiled and smoothed her skirt. You can't now, can you? I've paid you. They didn't speak another word the rest of the way. Ugh. That Paul is gross. He's a garbage. It really bothers me that Paul is never... Like, Paul never has to redeem himself or, like, apologize for being garbage in every possible way. He just gets to marry everybody. I mean, I guess I guess his penance is that he has to go to San Francisco to get her. I think he does kind of yeah, apologize maybe. to her a I little guess. bit. Whatever. But, yeah, it's not... He does not have to redeem himself at all the same amount that Angel does, even though he is garbage. All right. So our next dramatic reading is going to be uh, after Angel has come back from this first walkabout... And Michael is kind of wondering what to do, and God is advising him. And so um, Allie will read the role of Michael, and I will read the role of God, and uh, Kate will read the role of Angel. Michael rose and hung up the harnesses. He came out of the barn and walked slowly back to the cabin. What could become of a marriage so fouled by sexual betrayal? She never loved me in the first place. Why should I expect her loyalty? She never really promised it. I made her say the vows. She never said a word about being sorry, Lord. Not one word in 30 miles. Have I made a mistake? Was it your voice I heard, or was it my own flesh? Why are you doing this to me? He should have left her in paradise. She is your wife. Yes, but I don't know if I can forgive her. The image of her in bed with another man was branded in his mind. He couldn't get it out of his head. I loved her, Lord. I loved her enough to die for her, and she did this to me. Maybe she's beyond redemption. How do you forgive someone who doesn't even care enough to want to be forgiven? What does she want, Michael? Freedom. She wants freedom. The cabin was neat. A cozy fire was burning. The table was set and his breakfast ready. Only Angel was missing. 
Michael swore for the first time in years. Let her go back. I don't care. I'm sick of this struggle. He kicked the pot free of the iron bar. How many times am I supposed to go after her and bring her back? He sat for a while in the willow chair, but his anger just kept building. He would go find her again, and this time he would give her a good piece of his mind. He would tell her if she wanted to leave so badly, he'd even give her a ride back. Slamming out of the cabin, he stood outside, arms akimbo, wondering which way she had run off this time. He scanned the landscape and, with some surprise, spotted her standing naked in the creek. He strode down the bank. What are you doing? If you wanted a bath, why didn't you tote water to the house and warm it? In a sudden, uncharacteristic act of modesty, she turned her back to him, trying to hide herself. Go away. He stripped off his jacket. Come on out of there. You'll catch pneumonia. If you want a bath that badly, I'll tote the water. Go away! She screamed, dropping to her knees and hunching over. Don't be a fool! He waded in and caught hold of her, yanking her to her feet. Her fists were full of gravel. Her breasts and belly were raw from scrubbing. What are you doing to yourself? I have to wash. You didn't give me the chance. You've washed enough. He tried to put the jacket around her, and she pulled away. I'm not clean yet, Michael. Just go away and leave me alone. Michael grabbed her roughly. Will you be finished when you've stripped your skin off? When you've bled? Is that it? Do you think you're doing do you think doing this to yourself will make you clean? He let go of her, afraid he would do her physical harm. It doesn't work that way, he said through gritted teeth. She blinked and sat down slowly, the icy water swirling around her waist. No, I guess not, she said softly. Her tangled wet hair hung limp around her white face and shoulders. Come back inside, he said and helped her up. She came back without resistance this time, stumbling as they reached the bank. When she bent for her clothing, he pulled her along without them. Half shoving her into the cabin, he slammed the door. Yanking a blanket from the bed, he threw it to her. Sit down by the fire. Angel pulled the blanket around her shoulders and sat. She didn't raise her head. Glancing back at her, Michael poured a cup of coffee. Drink this. She did as he told her. You'll be lucky if you don't get sick. What are you trying to do? Make me feel guilty you went back to prostitution? Make me feel guilty for dragging you out of that brothel again? No, she said quietly. He didn't want to pity her. He wanted to shake her until her teeth fell out. He wanted to kill her. I could. God, I could kill her and be glad of it. Seventy times seven. I don't want to listen to you. I'm sick of listening. You ask too much. It hurts. Can't you understand? Don't you know what she's done to me? Seventy times seven. I had to ask Allie and Caitlin to explain that to me because I was like, why is God doing math? <laughs> it's 490, God, shut up. God invented math. Doesn't God have a calculator? <laughs> God invented calculators. Uh, yes, it is the, um, it's like the, the biblical equivalent of infinity. Seven is like a perfect holy number. Yeah, so so he's reminding Michael that he has to forgive her infinity times, basically. basically. Yeah. 
And guess what? He does, because Michael is a perfect cinnamon roll of forgiveness. All right. And then our last dramatic reading is also the very end of the book, where we get our happy ending. Hooray, hurrah. And for that, I will be Michael. Uh, Allie will be Sarah. Kate will be God. And Caitlin will again be our narrator. I hoped you would come home at some day, he said and smiled. There's so much I have to say, so many things to tell you. He combed his fingers into her flowing hair and tilted her head back. We have the rest of our lives. She knew then that she had doubted he would forgive her again, but he already had. She could live with him forever and not know his depths. Oh, Lord, thank you, thank you. She went into his arms, spreading her hands on his strong back, pressing herself as close as she could, her gratitude so strong she could hardly bear it. He was warmth and light and life. She wanted to be flesh of his flesh, blood of his blood, forever. Closing her eyes, she inhaled the sweet scent of him and felt she was finally home again. She thought she had been saved by his love for her, and in part she had been. It had cleansed her, never casting blame. But that had only been the beginning. It was loving him in return that had brought her up out of the darkness. What can I give him more than that? I would give him anything. Amanda, Michael said, holding her tenderly. Tirza. Sarah, came the still, soft voice, and she knew the one gift she had to offer, herself. Angel drew back from Michael and looked up at him. Sarah, Michael. My name is Sarah. I don't know the rest of it. Only that much. Sarah. Michael blinked, his whole body flooded with joy. The name fit her so well. A wanderer in foreign lands, a barren woman filled with doubt. Yet Sarah of old had become a symbol of trust in God and ultimately the mother of a nation. Sarah. A benediction. Sarah, a barren woman who conceived a son, his beautiful, cherished wife, who would someday give him a child. It's a promise, Lord, isn't it? Michael felt the warmth and assurance of it enter every cell of his body. He held out his hand. Hello, Sarah. She looked endearingly confused as she placed her hand in his. He shook it and grinned down at her. I'm very pleased to meet you. Finally. She laughed. You're such a crazy, crazy man, Michael. Michael laughed with her and pulled her into his arms to kiss her. He felt her arms around him as she kissed him back. She was home for good this time. Not even death would part them. When they drew breath, Michael swung her around and lifted her above him joyously. She threw back her head and spread her arms wide to embrace the sky, tears of celebration streaming down her cheeks. Michael had read once to her how God had cast a man and woman out of paradise. Yet for all their human faults and failures, God had shown them the way back in. And I guess this is God. It's not bold, though, but it does seem like it's God talking. See, this is, this is the font confusion. Who says the last paragraph of the book? I don't know. Maybe it's the devil. Everyone, but not Satan. 
Yeah, I actually closed it because I assumed I just had that one line. Yeah, it's fine. It might be Michael. Maybe it's what Michael's Michael. hearing. I'll just Michael say it. Michael is God. Let's just come out and yeah, say Yeah, Michael is Sarah's God. Whatever. The end paragraph of the book, which is in regular italics and not bold, and it is, love the Lord your God and love one another. Love one another as he loves. Love with strength and purpose and passion and no matter what comes against you. No, don't weaken. Stand against the darkness and love. That's the way back into Eden. That's the way back into life. You know, maybe that's Francine. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I hope so. It is. If it's, it's God, it's, it's in the third omniscient. person, but that is kind of God's shtick. So. Yeah, and I maybe mean, I have some major theological problems with it, so I'm going to say it's just Francine. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Francine. <laughs> And after this comes a two-page epilogue that is straight up, like, what is generated by the computer after you beat Oregon Trail. It's so true. (laughs) Your family settled in the Red River Valley on 300 acres of land and had three children. Like, it's that. (laughs) And it's great. And now we'll play Would You Rather. Yay. Well, before we play Would You Rather, I'm just going to note that, so, um... I don't know if it'll be edited out later, but um, earlier I was talking about how in the Kindle version, God is just regular bold, and the devil, looking back at it, was not italics, it was just plain text, and only about half of the thoughts are italics. That's a hot mess. (laughs) Because it was hard enough to follow in the print book, let me tell you. shoddy Kindle editing. (laughs) So reading a couple of those dramatic readings, I was like, Oh, <laughs> this changes some things. <laughs> but anyway, would you rather? All right. Well, would you rather talk in Comic Sans or Papyrus? <laughs> <laughs> That's not officially one of our questions, but maybe it should have been. Yeah, maybe it should have been. So I'll ask instead, would you rather be a simple farmer's wife or run the house of Magdalena? I would 100% choose the House of Magdalena. I imagine it as being in... So before I read this, I read a bunch of secular romance novels in a row. And in a Sarah McLean book, there is a fallen woman who had a child out of wedlock who runs this like awesome house of ladies. And that is how I imagine the House of Magdalena all the time. I would 100% move in there today. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. I think it would be a lot more fun and a lot more interesting to be in the house of Magdalena. Yeah, I would also do the house of Magdalena because when it comes down to it, I'm very good at like organization and running things and contract management and money and things like that. I am not very good at manual labor and like <laughs> you know like plowing cake. <laughs> so, you I know, I I do that. I don't have any of the skill sets required for either of these because House of Magdalene is all about like sewing and cooking mainly. I guess I can cook okay. And you can teach um, somebody to read. Oh yeah, I could do that straight up. Um, my only hesitation is it seems like the House of Magdalena they do also a lot of like Bible study and stuff, but I guess I could probably like get behind that. And you know, yeah, it's it seems like kind of a cool like it could be a cool Misandrous Coven. At least oh, it would I be if I were running super it. Into that. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, if you're running it, and, like 
you don't necessarily need to know any of those skills or participate in the Bible study. Like, think of yourself as like, you know, the CEO. The CEO isn't having lunch with the workers. Like, you're in your <laughs> office doing shit. Like, you don't have time to go out and read the Bible with people. You just tell everyone, oh, yeah, I read the Bible on my own in my office. And just look at, like, cat pictures on the internet. It's fine. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> I guess Wild I was West imagining internet. this all in old-timey times. <laughs> yeah. But I would just, like... Maybe have one of the ladies embroider a picture of a cat, and I would just look at that. Daguerreotypes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would have hella daguerreotypes of cats. <laughs> so I think hella daguerreotypes is going to be the name of our break off. <laughs> yes, please. Third <laughs> project. Fantastic. All right, well, speaking of old-timey stuff, would you rather marry Michael Hosea or Jamie Fraser from Outlander? Straight up, I would rather marry Michael Hosea because I feel like if I'm not, like, a prostitute who's resisting his marriage proposal, it would be a pretty normal, boring marriage, which, like, yeah, it would be marriage to a dude in the Old West, but whatever. Whereas... Fucking Jamie Fraser has a lot of baggage that I am just not prepared to deal with. You want to be the burrito e, not the burrito er. <laughs> exactly. That was that was gonna be my reason why I wanted to be Michael Jose. I just want to sit around and blanket all the time. <laughs> it's like my life goal. I want to be a, a cool Mexican bean wrap. <laughs> To be fair, Michael has a little bit of baggage. We didn't even talk about his oh garbage my father. Oh my god, his slavery past. But despite it being like one of the worst things in this book, I think we're led to get the impression that he disapproves of slavery. And so, like, I would marry him and do political stuff. And you know, you can run away for three years and he won't come after you. And that's really all I want in a husband. That's true. Well, I think I'm gonna have to break. And I'll I'll take Jamie. Um, it seems like they had real good sex times. Um, I guess Michael, um, you know, it just maybe it just wasn't as explicit. But you know, you she get that flew. Guy. That's she flew. True. That's true. Um, and then also with Jamie, I don't know. You get to live at a castle and stuff like that, which I'm. I don't necessarily romanticize any kind of old timey situation. But I guess if I gotta pick one, maybe I'll pick that over over just the simple cabin. You could play with herbs too. Yeah, a lot of herbs. Um, it seems like Claire there's kind of more of a social life. She gotta be friends with like witches and stuff. <laughs> and if you're married to Michael, it kinda seems there's like no witches. you've you've just got Paul and the cinnamon roll family, which is <laughs> nice, but I, I feel like Claire had a little bit more going on. So I'll take Touché. that. <laughs> All right, last up, would you rather find a husband on christianmingle.com or cut out the middleman and just marry the man who <laughs> says God told him to marry you? Uh, you I know, feel like these are functionally the same thing. Uh, no. Well, <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
with ChristianMingle.com, our beloved sponsor, I could find a man who's pretty sure God wants him to marry me, but I could also make sure that we have similar interests first. Like, if he lives on a farm, I could be like, mm, I don't think God wants me to marry you because I don't like farms. And you, and know, you should try FarmersOnly.com. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if he was like, oh, like, I like the X-Files and ordering Thai food, I'd be like, God definitely wants me to marry you and not, you know, if he was like, I'm super rich and I'm just looking for someone to whatever, like, God definitely wants me to marry him. I'm pretty sure people who like the X-Files aren't allowed on ChristianMingle.com. It's <laughs> definitely true. Um, Scully's a good Catholic. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. But there's a ton exactly. of Catholic bashing in this book. <laughs> oh, do, are Catholics not on Christian Mingle? Do they have their own thing? I'm sure they have their sure. own thing. Interesting. Huh. <sighs> well, anyway, obviously, obviously I know all about how ChristianMingle.com works because it's our sponsor and I'm just testing you guys. And yeah. uh, obviously I would choose their oh. services. Uh, as the only person uh, in this group that still uh, identifies as a Christian and is involved in a Christian faith community, like, nothing against your sponsor, guys. I don't want to step on any toes here. <laughs> but um, all of the experiences on ChristianMingle.com aren't super positive <laughs> from what I've heard among my community. <laughs> so maybe I just better leave it to God to tell the man who's gonna marry me <laughs> yeah well, i kind of think i would go that way too and i don't know what that says about me there's <laughs> some soul searching after this podcast <laughs> i mean i will say as great as christian mingle is uh all online dating is exhausting so if somebody like cared enough to be like hey like god told me it's you i might i think that would be kind of tempting like to be like oh sure like, don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would at least give that guy one date. Yeah, okay. for sure I'd give that guy a date. For sure I'd give that guy a date. Pro tip to any listeners who might have a crush on me, just <laughs> <I'll>... <laughs> tell me that God sent you, and we'll see where this goes. <laughs> yeah, same. I legit just turned, I legit just turned my OkCupid profile into... Uh, message me if you want to listen to Hamilton and make out. So I'm pretty desperate <laughs> at this point. <laughs> good, good. Well, now that we've all revealed these important facts about ourselves, let us move on to some reader's advisory and suggest some books for you to read instead of or in addition to Redeeming Love. Yeah, I'm going to go straight up instead of. Um, when we said we were reading this, at least one person on Twitter said they thought they should read it too. And the answer is no, please don't. Don't do that. Um, please, <laughs> please, please that. don't. Um, and I, if you already have, you probably grew up the same way we did and understand yeah. everything that we're saying. And probably need to join the support group that we'll be convening as soon as we hang up this. <laughs> Meet us on Twitter, guys. <laughs> yes, please. So, um,. I have kind of a grab bag of reader's advisory selections here. Uh, when I was pondering my choices in my heart, I happened to walk into a bookstore that was selling a Heroines of the Old Testament coloring book. And I think that's really perfect for um, people who really think this is your jam. 
Um, it gives you kind of the vague outlines of biblical stories and lets you fill them in with whatever floats your boat, which is what happened here. And also probably super therapeutic for after you're done with your reading. A book that I legitimately recommend if you are a person of religious background, well, Protestant Christian background and religious interest, um, and also like stories about difficult people trying to decide if they are going to fall in love, and also children with traumatic pasts, is a book called The Solace of Leaving Early by Haven Kimmel. It cites actual theologians. I learned some things about theology from it. It's also one of my favorite books of all time. Another good book about just like badass ladies of history who have scandalous past, this one ends up working as a women's health practitioner and an abortion doctor, is My Notorious Life by Kate Manning. It has very little religious content. It has an A-plus romantic partner for our main character. Um, it's super feminist. Everyone should read it. Um, and then if you are in the Ali and Me Club of, oh my god, what was my childhood here, um, a book came out, I think, last year called yeah. Damaged Goods by Diana Anderson. I'm going to co-sign this one. For real. And she um, also grew up in the kind of same era and evangelical tradition that I did, which was super obsessed with purity and virginity and true love waiting and all this stuff that kind of underpins the sexual morality of this book. And she also is still um, a Christian and still believes in God but really dissects kind of the rhetoric that we just grew up completely flooded in and talks really frankly about how it affected her development as a human being and how she's come to terms with it as an adult. And I just, it's a fantastic book. I strongly recommend it if that's your history or if you just are so weirded out by all of this and wonder what it was like to be us as 12-year-olds, um, it will do that job for you. And... Anything else I want to mention? Oh, if you just like Bible retellings and you're done reading the Bible, but you want Bible-related stories, um, Certain Women by Madeline Langle, Madeline Langle, sorry, who's another uh, faithful Christian author, writes some Christian things, is based on some of the stories about David. I'm sure it is much better than this book. Um, I think my mom would highly recommend it. And then the last thing I wanted to say in Reader's Advisory is if you, the listener, are a person who wrote your dissertation on evangelical culture and published it as a book, I legitimately want you to tell me about it right now because I will buy it. This is what I read for fun. Um, please get at me. Caitlin is our uh, resident academic librarian here. So. <laughs> Caitlin, have, did you read Rapture Practice by Aaron Hartzler? I have not yet, but it's on my list. I really like that it, one. It's it's a memoir of he grew up in an evangelical church, but he was gay, and it's about mm -hmm. that, and it's really good, I thought. Yeah, I really liked his book that came out this year, What We Saw, which is about mm -hmm. rape and sexual morality, but also has a character who is Christian and kind of struggling with the main character's feminist awakening. And sounds like myself as a teenager. So another good place to experience my life secondhand. Yay! So two thumbs up for Aaron Hartzler from yeah. Worst Bestsellers. So I have not as many as Caitlin, but um, so there's a book that came out. It's got to be like 10 years ago now. It's called Rapture Ready. And the <laughs> subtitle uh, is Adventures in the Parallel Universe of Christ uh, Christian Pop Culture. It's by Daniel Radosh. Um, Daniel Radosh is not a Christian, so he's kind of coming to this, um, 
to this world as an outsider and like looking at like evangelical fiction is just one facet that exists within Christian pop culture. I mean, there's the music, there's, yeah, yeah, it's like what is affectionately referred to as Jesus junk that is, mm-hmm. gets sold in all the Christian books. It's really fascinating. So if you have no background on this at all, um, he like there's there's humor in it because it, it's you know the whole industry is funny, but he really he comes at it from a, a relatively respectful place, and it's a it's a really fun book. So that one's good. Um, when we were on fire by Addie Zierman came out last year, and this is another one that she um, Addie grew up is a memoir. She grew up in this kind of uh, Christian in the teen mania era, and as an adult. She had to figure out, like, she's remained a Christian, and she's had to figure out, like, this really messed me up, and it really uh, messed up my ideals of what Christians are and what mission work is, and how do I reconcile this as an adult human woman? And it's really interesting. Um, That's, like, the Christian memoir of people trying to reconcile their uh, adult faith with their teen nonsense. That's my personal (laughs) reading jam. Me um, too. And then um, we there's have a book. issues. Yeah, we have major issues. Um, and then there's a book called Jesus Feminist by Sarah Bessie. And Sarah Bessie is a Canadian um, teacher uh, and pastor. And it's it's just a really good look at what it means to um, to be a Christian and still um, focus on women and how faith does and feminism don't have to compete against each other how they can coexist it's a great book the only thing i'm gonna add is that i think if you're looking for something with like an old-timey kind of romance that isn't uh anti-adoption i would definitely (laughs) recommend the movie australia starring (laughs) hugh jackman and nicole kidman as australians and it's really like campy cheesy uh pre-World War II and during World War II epics, and not at all the same time period, but just kind of a sweeping old-timey romance where they adopt a kid, and there's, like, a really great scene where Hugh Jackman takes a shower in a water tower. Oh, yeah, that he, is really great. I'm maybe just watch that. that. Maybe just watch <laughs> Hugh Jackman having a shower in a water tower is my reader's advisory <laughs> suggestion to you. <laughs> so how many Bos Lerman movies have we mentioned during <laughs> <laughs> It's so Re- funny to hear the recommendations of someone who grew up in the secular world and like has <laughs> no baggage whatsoever. <laughs> I We're sorry, y'all. We're so broken. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But we're happy to have you here. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any particular recommendations for this because I figure other people've got it covered much better than I do and to be honest, right now, I'm just trying to get caught up on reading comics. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Instead of reading this book, read any comics. Yes. Yeah. I <laughs> That's my recommendation. Read Bitch Planet. Read, oh, yes, God. Definitely. <laughs> All y'all soil doves are non-compliant <laughs> If you're looking for something that is the literal opposite of this book, read <laughs> Bitch Planet by <laughs> Kelly Sue <Zutigana. laughs> 
Yeah, Thanks. I bought myself uh, The Wicked and the Divine as my reward for when I was done with this book because a oh, new yeah, trick yeah. just dropped a couple weeks ago. And that is in the other direction, the precise opposite of this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also yes. highly recommended. Just read <laughs> yes. a bunch of comics, guys. Always. And, of course, listen to Hamilton if you want to get under your own vine and fig tree. <laughs> yep. And have a philandering spouse be redeemed through forgiveness. Yes. She's never going to be president now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, such great advice from all of us. And <laughs> let us move on now to our candy pairing, where we'll suggest a candy to accompany this book. Okay, so, you know, a few minutes ago when I was talking about um, Rapture Ready, I uh, affectionately referred to the gross capitalist arm of Christian pop culture <laughs> as Jesus junk. <laughs> so there is a, there's a Jesus junk mint. They're called Testaments. Get it? Testaments. Um, I think you can only get them from Oriental Trading now, but they were everywhere when we were kids. They're individually wrapped mints, and the package... Each package has a Bible verse on it. Yeah, can't make this up. So my recommendation is exceedingly specific to this book. But what I imagine for your perfect candy pairing is if you take like a beautiful brand name piece of chocolate full of hope and promises and then you unwrap it and you lick it and you drop it in the dirt and then you wrap it back up and offer it to someone uh, a, you have a soiled dove bar, <laughs> and B, um, I really did go through the public school sex ed of no one wants a licked cupcake and no one wants pre-chewed gum, so you will get to experience the true sexual morality that underpinned this experience. I would like to furiously co-sign that, and also I have a game I like to play on Twitter. I usually keep a bag of dove promises in my desk drawer at work, <laughs> and I like to um, eat one and then... You know how when you eat a fortune cookie, you add in bed at the end of it? But I like yeah. to add for murder to the end of my dumb promises. <laughs> That's so amazing. it's always like, take a moment for yourself for murder. <laughs> and and I, I feel like uh, Sarah Angel could really get behind that. She had a lot she of rage really to work could. out. I'd probably be healthy for her. I agree. Um, so I'll say my candy pairing is actually just a glass of milk. Which we did, I don't think we got into this, but a, a whole thing for Angel Sarah was she didn't like alcohol, she didn't like to drink, but her favorite thing was milk. And so at the various whorehouses, uh, she would kind of trade with the other girls, like they would take her wine or champagne and she would get their extra milk. And that was like her treat. And She's so wholesome. She's so, she's the wholesomest soil dove. Um, but for me, literal heart of gold. I can't believe we haven't made that joke yet. Oh. Yep. <laughs> uh, so I I know a lot of people like grew up drinking milk as kids. In our house, we never really like drank milk as a drink. It wasn't a thing for us, and so I never ever just drink a glass of milk. I would much rather have the champagne. So I'll say a glass of milk though is the candy for this book. <laughs> And for me, I was raised Catholic, and I went to catechism classes, and in catechism classes, basically, it was just filled with public school kids whose parents were nominally religious, who would send them to these religious classes once a week so that they could go through the motions of hitting all the sacraments. Um, so we would do all these, like, 
weird games and stuff to learn these bizarre workbooks that we had and we'd like play Bible Jeopardy and dumb things like that. And when you won, they would give you a piece of chocolate that had a scripture verse on the wrapper. So that is my candy pairing for this book, an attempt by the religious establishment to win people <laughs> over by wrapping something they like in the trappings of Christianity. I just want to say I feel completely spooked out and affirmed right now in that your description of catechism as a place where otherwise secular people send their children to just kind of go through motions and learn sacraments is pretty much exactly what I was taught about Catholics and why they're not real Christians. So, uh, it turns out that was true. <laughs> I mean, kids Sorry, who went to... Actual faithful Catholics. <laughs> yeah, like, there, there were Catholics, like, kids who went to Catholic school, like, that was, they did, like, real religion, and then, like, if you didn't go to Catholic school, this is how you learned religion. Your parents made you go to CCD once a week. And win chocolate. <laughs> yes. And learn how know... to sing songs about Jesus in sign language. <laughs> Does anybody know where I can get one of those tea necklaces? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I was raised. <laughs> Basically. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Though I will say, my family came into the church when we moved to the U.S., which is a whole thing about how Americans socialize. But before we were religious, um, the most famous story from my childhood is that one Christmas when I was two or three, my mom was reading me a book about the Christmas story to try to explain like why we had a Christmas tree and all this stuff and the baby Jesus and this and that. And she got to the end of the book and like asked me if I had any questions. And I said, well, yeah, mommy. What kind of cheeses was it? <laughs> so I, I've A lived plus. both ways. I'm pro cheeses. Um, <laughs> alternate candy pairing for sure. Or just a burrito. Yeah, there's cheeses in burritos. That's fine. Yeah, a nice queso burrito. <laughs> oh, <that's> great. <laughs> and now I guess we'll try to pick up the pieces of this conversation. I mean. <laughs> and- <laughs> I'm and so move sorry. on <laughs> to, <laughs> to our favorite game. Everything. The Rock Paper Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne the Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine from the X-Men would be if he were in this book. And Allie and Caitlin will choose which would most enhance the book, or they can choose paper, which is to leave the book as is. All right. If Dwayne the Rock Johnson were in this book, uh, he would stop for a drink at this weird, creepy seaside tavern while he was off, like, being the rock and being awesome. And um, the clientele would seem kind of rough and ill-mannered, but, you know, dudes being dudes, so whatever, to each his own. So he's enjoying his drink, and then he sees Cleo, Sarah's nanny, come in with eight-year-old Sarah and grows suspicious of the way that Cleo is neglecting Sarah and the way that Merrick, Cleo's weird boyfriend, is kind of twisting Cleo's inhibitions with alcohol. So he steps in to put a stop to both of those things and ends up rescuing Sarah from her neglectful guardians and bringing her back home to her mother's house. 
And once he's there, he could tell that something's weird with Sarah's mother. And because, like, you know, he's so kind and good-natured, eventually he's able to wheedle the story out of her that uh, Sarah's father, who was supporting her financially, has abandoned her because he never wanted Sarah and she doesn't know what she's going to do because her family's disowned her. And he's just shocked by this and really offended that people would put her in this position when she has a child. So he offers her a respectable job working for him and sets her and Sarah up in a nice, comfortable apartment, and the rest of the book doesn't happen. So far, so good. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, you know, similarly, if Wolverine were in this book, he would uh, go to the Duke's brothel saloon, whatever it is, tavern, uh, for a drink, and he would realize that even though he's pretty comfortable with shady establishments, that this place is actually a little too shady for him. Uh, once he figures out what's going on, he stabs the Duke in the face and rescues all of the baby prostitutes, including Angel Sarah. And he drops them all off at a boarding school where they all develop mutant powers and grow up to become a team that travels the country and avenges women of all stars and stripes. Okay, so I like both of these. I appreciate that you both concentrated on like the first 20 pages of the book and (laughs) raised the rest of it. Um, Both of these are clearly superior to paper, but if you read like my dream journal of perfect books, it would include all of the following things. Uh, Boarding school, mutant powers, women, avenging women. Avenging women. Yeah. I'm sorry. Avenging women just hits all my buttons. Yeah. Stabbing Duke in the face. So even though I kind of want Sarah never to have lived this life, Wolverine is saving all the baby prostitutes. So I am going to go with Snicked. I'm going to, I'm going to go with snicked also because avenging women mm-hmm. yeah yeah if it weren't a copyright infringement i, th- I think birds of prey would be a good name for them because they're like, <laughs> so, like soiled doves of prey i don't yes. know <laughs> they'll figure it out the rock can come too though oh I'll, yeah I'll always always they probably met at the tavern you have to imagine at the end of every rock, paper, snicked, like five minutes after where, however we end it ends, they meet the other one. Yeah, they it. all have the, like, implied epilogue, and then the rock and Wolverine made out. Yes. <laughs> Just to let you all in, that's so the implied really... epilogue of all of them. <laughs> Sweet. As, Sweet. As we always say, there are no losers in rock, paper, snicked, <laughs> paper which no one ever does. All right, well, let us move on to the moral of the story and wrap this up. Okay, so the moral of purity culture is kind of that if you stay completely virginal and true, the Lord will bless you with a similarly virginal and true spouse and everything will be perfect. But then you become an adult and you get books that say the exact opposite. And this book really uh, is emblematic of that. So my moral of the story was that if you're a boy who grows up good and righteous, you will be rewarded with a beautiful whore who didn't really want to be a whore, but it made her good at sex stuff. And she might (laughs) run away, but eventually she'll come around again and have magical babies. If you're a girl who grows up pure and holy, you get Paul. Like two of them got Paul, who is the worst. But I guess you should listen to God and follow his instructions or something. My moral of the story is that infertile women just aren't praying hard enough. My moral of the story is that all that women want is to be wives and baby makers. It is our divine purpose. That's a direct quote. 
It, it is literally a direct quote from this book. <laughs> and my moral of the story is a frequent moral here at Worst Bestsellers. <laughs> Men are the worst. They are. Indeed. Are the Indeed. worst. But now we will turn and ask one man, one male cat, I guess, for his opinion. Uh, it's time for Duarte's Corner, where my cat Duarte shares his opinions. Yeah, Duarte, I I appreciate all your really thoughtful analysis of purity culture. And once again, I am sorry that you were fixed, but I really think that it was for the best. And I think this is not the appropriate place to talk about it. I'm also glad that Duarte has moved on and is joining the Soiled Doves of Prey. I think he'll do them well as a, like, Charlie-type figure. Yeah. See, I'm concerned about him, you know, maybe joining the Soiled Doves of Prey for the wrong reason. You know they're not actually doves, right? They're they're people. You can't eat them. Yeah. But they all have superpowers, so they could probably hunt you down some real doves real quick. It's a win-win-win. (laughs) And that's the best kind of situation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Dorote. And do any humans have any closing thoughts about this book? I'm never reading this book ever again. Yeah. No kidding. And you're not. (laughs) I mean, Jordan Sparks read it 14 times. Do you think you could catch up with her? It's her favorite book. She's read it at least 14 times. At least. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So this book is so ubiquitous that like the copy that I read, my friend Katie still had it in her house in a box under a bed, like because we all had it. So I think we're going to have like a ceremonial burning ceremony of some type. Yay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I can recommend that. I did that with my copy of Dianetics. It was very, (laughs) very calming. Yeah. If you are feeling slightly traumatized now, the way we are, um, we are here for you. Come join our support group. Please come talk to us about our sorted, non-sorted pasts. (laughs) I just feel really sad. Yeah. All right. Well, I I hope this didn't bring up too many engrams for you. (laughs) Uh, I hope you can get clear again. (laughs) Just make yourselves a nice burrito and and have your have your e-meter fired up <laughs> well well i'm not sarah i like alcohol i don't have to just drink milk so oh, great, great. <laughs> perfect solution all right well um you can follow us as a podcast on twitter at worst bestseller with no s uh because michael stole the s to use it to make different <laughs> names up for angel <laughs> And you can also like us on Facebook, where we're the worst bestsellers spelled normally. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Renata Snacks. You can follow me personally on Twitter at 14across. You can follow me on Twitter at ASWATKI1, A-S-W-A-T-K-I-1. You can follow me on Twitter at BrownKR, which is B-R-O-W-N-E-K-R. Um, and I will also mention in the name of historical women, I run a Tumblr for the feminist task force called women of library history.tumblr.com. 
Uh, there will still be time when this episode drops to come tell us about all the amazing sordid prostitute librarians in your town's past so right. we can celebrate them. Right. And I run a uh, feminist Tumblr with former guests, Amy. Um, and you can come join us at jointhegirlgang.tumblr.com. Yeah. Ladies all over this Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we've dealt with our childhoods. <laughs> yes. Accurate. <laughs> Raging feminists now. <laughs> uh, you can, so many things you can do. You can visit our website, worstbestsellers.com, where we'll have reader's advisory with all of the books that we suggested and more. Uh, maybe I'll just embed that clip of Hugh Jackman taking a shower in a water tower. Probably <laughs> should look for that. I'm sure there are gifts of that somewhere. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you do, please rate and review us. Uh, it pops us up in the charts so that more people can discover our podcast and be scarred for life by hearing about these books. Uh, don't review Yay. us. <laughs> We're going to take away all your alcohol and replace it with milk. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much to our guests for joining us and to our listeners for listening to us. And we will be back in two weeks with Stories I Only Tell My Friends, written by my nemesis, Rob Lowe. <laughs> Ostensibly written? Yeah, I mean, I, we'll Rob get Lowe into can't that. read. <laughs> we will get into that in two weeks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yeah, I would have hella daguerreotypes of cats. <laughs> <laughs>